Hi, my name is Queen Zoya Counts, and today I will be reading Chapter 2 of Whisper Softly or You're Dead, Men of Valor, Women of Steel, Book 2. Written by Tony Bolton. Chapter 2, Danger is Where You Least Expected. It was Sunday. Mary Jane was taking a bus to her hometown for a day on the beach with her friend Susan. A warm day. They would swim or paddle and take a picnic lunch and giggle over their bottle of wine and ice creams, their only luxuries. She waited, humming to herself, thinking how easily the weather changed around here. Suddenly, her neck tingled. A cold shiver froze her back and her throat and chest tightened. She turned around. Britt stood in the opposite doorway, watching her intensely. He smiled but said nothing, just watched her until the bus arrived and he joined the queue. He sat behind her, but she sensed his cold blue eyes boring through her back. She felt dirty, as if he were mentally stripping her. No way, pal. She didn't want to encourage him nor get him into worse trouble with that cop. She seen the look of fury in the cop's eyes, not the anger of a professional doing his job, but something more personal. He frightened her for a moment until he showed her his badge. She waited uneasily until her friend greeted her at the stop. Britt stood outside the bus looking around him, pretending he was no longer interested in her, but she was taken in. Who is that guy whose eyes are glued to you? He looks as if he wants to hit on you. Let's go, said Mary Jane, taking her friend's arm and hustling her in the direction of a beach cafe. I'll tell you everything when we find a table. Strange, thought Susan as her friend chose a seat in the middle of the crowded interior surrounded by others. Usually they sat outside away from the crowds, but Mary Jane now felt safer in a crowd. Britt could not sit near her or reach her now. They claimed the last table, but he sat looking through the window at them. He could not take his eyes off her. That guy is giving me the creeps, said Susan, shivering as she sat down. His name is Dave Britt. He gave me a lift and became fresh with me outside my apartment. He wouldn't take no for an answer, but a cop who lives in his block dragged him out of the car and threatened to hurt him if he didn't leave me alone. He said Britt was watching me and he was keeping an eye on him. He didn't arrest him? No. No caution at the police precinct either. He just twisted his arm behind his back and frightened the bastard. He appeared furious as if he took the threat to me personally. Well, Britt doesn't seem to have heeded his warning. What are you going to do? Ignore him. I'm safe while I'm with you. He isn't stupid. He is an accountant. If he follows me around all day, I'll report him to the cop. I still feel uncomfortable with you going home on the bus with him. I wish I had a car to take you home. Tom is away, or he would give you a lift. Not for the first time did Mary Jane wish she could find a boyfriend like Susan's Tom, who would walk on hot coals for her. Her fiancé had treated her as if she was unimportant. Her needs come in second to his ambitions. He dropped her like hotcakes when she left college to look after her mother studying by correspondence when she became the breadwinner of her family. She was not the driven, ambitious woman he hoped to accompany him to the top of his legal career. I don't want a wife dragging her feet behind me, Mary Jane. Let welfare services take care of her. 
She refused, knowing the kind of home her mother would end her days in dreary, understaffed, wishing an early death. He terminated their engagement and she moved into her mother's apartment. They spent a great day on the beach, the autumn sun unusually fierce bronzing them and warming them. Britt followed them to where they lay eating and chatting. Then he vanished. Their unease dissipated until about six o'clock when he reappeared and waited behind them. Susan grasped her arm and turned her fiercely. I want you to ring me when you get home and not a moment later. Dial that cop's number and put it on auto dial so you can call him if Britt accosts you. He can be with you in minutes or get the cops to you. Mary Jane nodded and keyed in the number to satisfy her friend. She climbed into the bus and sat behind the driver. Brent went to the back again. Susan told the driver, That creep at the back in the khaki and leather jacket is pestering my friend. The cops have warned him to leave her alone. Keep an eye on her for me, will you please? Sure, little lady. I hate men who pester women. She gave him some dollars to show her appreciation and he started the bus. Mary Jane dozed, summoning her strength and courage for the confrontation that might come if Britt accosted her again. Her apartment was only five minutes from the bus stop, and she would run into one of the shops and ring the cops if she felt really threatened. She might have to call a legal aid center for advice if he pursued her. She couldn't afford an injunction or attorney fees. The police would have to intervene. Thank God she had a detective on her side. Chase spotted that bastard Brit follow her onto the bus. He knew she met her friend once a month in her hometown and thought she was probably safe. He could not follow her there. He must gain her trust. She would wonder why he was so interested in her welfare if he got too close to her. He must stop the rage building inside of him when he sensed Brit's eyes running over her mentally undressing her he would watch her from a distance and guard her unless Britt tried to strike and then the man would wish he hadn't been born or his name wasn't Raymond Michael Chase he waited in the ice cream parlor for the bus to arrive she always returned about seven o'clock early enough to make supper for her mother a woman from the nearby church stayed with her that one day a month he noticed how happy she seemed when she returned from visiting her friend the tiredness and worry leaving her for a day when she got off the bus she appeared stressed as if her worries had not been driven away this time or were replaced by a more fearsome worry Britt got off immediately behind her pushing in front of the other passengers determined to catch her up Chase left his ice he pushed the door of the parlor open with unnecessary force but restrained his wrath Britt grabbed her arm and said you sure had a nice day I thought you might have asked me to join you and your friend push off Mr. Britt being polite was no good he has sent her cards and letters for the last month pushing them through her letterbox bouquets arrived with messages asking her for dates she phoned the florists requesting them to cancel any deliveries to her house but he used another company he walked around the grocery store with her although she never acknowledged his greetings nor spoke with him she deafed him out but he carried on smiling at her in his ghostly deathly quiet manner i want you to leave me alone don't send anything to me talk with me or follow me you mean nothing to me oh 
but you mean a lot to me, darling, he said. He, I dream of you every night. She rested her arm from his grasp and walked on around the corner, her pace increasing as her heart raced. She need not have worried. When they were out of sight of the shops, a tall figure turned the corner and strode to them. He pushed past her and grabbed Britt by the throat, pushing him against a street lamp and kneeing him in the groin, making him double over. This is what <clears throat> happens to little boys who don't know the meaning of the word no growled out Chase, barely containing his fury. He knew he should take this creep to the precinct and get him arrested and cautioned, but he wanted to kill him. All the hostility he had suppressed surfaced now, ready to erupt the volcanic force and heat. He was red in the face, boiling hot. He had not sensed this all-consuming anger in years. He punched Britt's face again and again and kicked the already prone man in the kidneys until Mary Jane intervened thinking he would kill him that is enough detective he can't hurt me now he saw the frightened look on her face it was he who now terrified her not this inadequate pervert he was making her the victim instead of helping her avoid this guy he contained his wrath knowing it would surface one day again unless he accepted professional counseling he needed to channel this fierce energy into forces for good he let the man go and gave him a precious few minutes to recover. Then he pulled him up. I'll tell the precinct about this, whimpered Britt, cowering away from him. No, you won't, you gutless piece of shit. Only an adequate, inadequate coward stalks and handles unwilling women. I didn't hurt her or harm her in any way. Not like those women in Dallas you threatened and abused, accused Chase. Britt's eyes turned glassy and his face strained of blood as white as a sheet. He tried to smile. It, it isn't true, Mary Jane. They weren't like you. I wouldn't hurt you. I promise you are different. They was just whores. That is enough. He has a record for stalking and abusing women. He turned to the man. You pack up and leave this town within the month or I'll turn you in and you will be back in jail again. Britt looked scared. I am on a temporary contract anyway. I'll finish at the end of the week. You promise not to report me and I will go. He left hurriedly. An abuser and stalker living near to me? Why didn't you arrest and caution him? He might do it again to some other woman and hurt her badly. I have my reasons. They were only minor assaults, harassing and grabbing women to gain their attention. Only once did he hit a woman in an argument. That is enough. I am putting a note on his file of these incidents. They will go on the FBI computer. I'll find out the next town he is in. And if he is reported or investigated again, this will be flagged up. Mary Jane felt uncomfortable letting him go, but acquiesced. An experienced cop, Chase, appeared to have her interest at heart. She had been attracted to this detective previously, but now... She was repulsed by him. He was different from the quiet, charming man who led her to the door the night he rescued her from Britt. He seemed to be a man bent on vengeance as if Britt's attentions were no longer the reason he assaulted him. His actions went beyond reasonable protection of a member of the public to pure hatred and the desire to inflict pain on a man who angered him. She felt sick when he nearly pulverized the man's face and kidneys. His eyes were like molten balls of steel embedded in his face. His expression impassive, robot-like as he nearly beat the life out of the pathetic smaller man. This crime seemed to affront him as if it hurt his core. He needed to rid himself of this hostility by pure violence. 
He led her safely to her door, and he told her to change her locks and keep his number keyed automatically on her phone. Any trouble, ring him or the precinct. Saddened, he left her. He knew he had overstepped the mark when he let his anger take him over. It was that or let it suffocate him and burn him up from inside. Until he confronted this rage, he would not live a normal life. His psychologist warned him, and he wished he had listened to her. His life would have been different if he had. No empty, soulless relationships, which led to nowhere. He would not be alone and lonely now. Mary Jane let herself in. The darkness that surrounded her made her feel bereft, an empty feeling in her soul. She sat listening to the reality show which dominated TV these nights. Soon she would have to drag herself to the kitchen and feed her mother. Her mother was fading fast. She loved her mother, but she might be able to fund a full-time place at law school if she no longer had the medical bills to pay. She would leave this soulless, damp, cockroach-infested apartment forever. Strange. Her mother did not call her when she came in. She always called her when Mary Jane let herself into the house, but there was only silence. Perhaps she was asleep. Her mother napped in the afternoon, but slept more each day as she took more drugs to sedate her and take away the gnawing pain. She went to the bedroom, surprised the door was closed. She always left it ajar in case her mother wanted to call her for something. There was no light shining beneath it. Usually a night light was on so her mother could find her medicines or books if she could not rest. She must be sound asleep. Mary Jane knocked quietly. No answer. Opening the door, she peered around it. Her mother was sitting up in bed, her back straightened against the upright pillows which were bunched up to support her. Her head was stiff, eyes staring. Fear gripped Mary Jane's heart. She grasped the switch with trembling fingers, trying it several times before she could grip it sufficiently to make it light the room. Brightness lit the room but could not lighten the darkness death ushered in. Terror was marked across her mother's face. She stared at Mary Jane through glassy eyes, the eyes of a lost soul pleading for mercy. Her eyelids creased as she faced her killer. Her neck was discolored by the blood that ran down the crease with the red globules formed as they dried. Her hands were tied above her in the form of a woman on a cross. Throat cut, she had slowly bled to death. This had not been enough for the murderer. Mary Jane wretched as she spotted the slashes through her mother's nightgown in the sheets. She turned and frantically ran to the phone. As she reached it, she saw the cut wires dangling like sad remnants of discarded knitting. Who had disabled it? She heard a rustle as someone brushed past the door, a squeak as the rusty door locked opened slowly, the person trying to disguise the noise as he or she moved toward her. She ran for her life to the front door after knocking on the wall, shouting for help. Her old neighbor was deaf and didn't hear anything. She must reach the outside to be safe. The door always jammed. The damn landlord didn't repair it as he should. Pulling it open, she breathed a sigh of relief and stepped into the apartment foyer. The lights were left on. 24-24, thank God. She keyed in her number on the pad to open the door but froze as the lights went out. 
Her fingers were covered by the hand which trapped hers on the pad. Another hand grasped her around her head, holding her mouth shut. So tight, she barely breathed. Her hand was pulled off the pad and held behind her until she was dragged back down the stairs to the cellar and utility room. The person sat her on a chair and tied her hands to its arms. He looked up. But all she could see was cobalt eyes through a black mask, which completely disguised his features. Her cell rang. He held it to her ear. Answer it as if you are safe, but tell me what he wants, said her captor. Whisper softly to me or you're dead. It was Susan inquiring about her safety. Are you okay? Did Britt try it on again with you? Yes, sure I'm safe. He followed me off the bus, and Detective Chase warned him to leave our town. He has a record for abusing women, but he was not tried to contact me since. She managed to whisper to her captor, although her throat was dry and hoarse. My friend wants to know if a man who accosted me earlier has left me alone. Say you are going to bed now, but we'll ring her in the morning to assure her you are okay, ordered the man. She relayed the message, but was sure her unnaturally calm and monotonous voice must warn Sue she was definitely not okay and needed help. Sue was not alerted to her plight. She rang off after telling her to lock her doors tight. She would ring in the morning to assure herself her friend was safe. Her captive took the cell and spoke in gruff, hoarse tones, unnatural, as if he was trying to disguise his real voice. Fear was rising in her, overwhelming her body, making it difficult for her to breathe and concentrate her mind. What did he want from her? Why did he kill her mother? Would he keep her captive like those girls she had read about in New York? He came close to her, of average height but very slim, dressed in bulky, masculine, casual clothes and brogues. He leaned over her to intimidate her. His hair was dark, curly under the mask, and his jaw was limp and weak. Only his eyes showed determination and strength, those blue orbs spearing her as if he might read her thoughts. Oh, Mary Jane, I thought you were not like the rest, taking lifts like the other whores, wearing bikinis on the beach, showing your wares to any man. I thought you were pure, unlike other girls. I knew. Graham said you were untouched. Was this creep a friend of my ex, she wondered. His mother was a born-again Christian, and she had not slept with him because of his convictions. After five long years of courting, they had intended to be married and waited. Was she to die a virgin despite what this masked man thought? I'm still pure. I haven't slept with a man yet. He shrugged, pure in body but not in thoughts. It makes no difference in heaven or hell, he said, crossing himself. Your death will purify you again, I promise. He said, freezing her soul as his blue eyes turned as hard as stone. First, you must show your penance for your brazen thoughts. You must repent before you meet your maker. He said, pulling her hair back. Repeat after me. I have sinned, my Lord. Mary Jane now recognized he would show her no mercy and intended she would die. Whatever she said. The only issue would be how painfully and slowly she died. Damn you. I wish I had screwed all the football teams in the college. At least I would have enjoyed myself before I died, 
She turned on him, anger conquering her fear of him. A blade was digging in her, bloody in her neck. And you, what does an inadequate bastard like you do for kicks? Or are you unable to get it up? The cobalt eyes narrowed and the pupils enlarged. She had made a bit only for a moment. The eyes turned cold again. He pushed her head back. You are no use to me now. I need purity. Death will purify you for my cause. He watched the blood drizzle and pour out in a stream until her head was no longer supported by her neck and hung there suspended on her chest. Silent now, her captor wiped her neck. Now for the distasteful part of his work, he took the blade and violently and erratically slashed across her body. Standing back for a moment, satisfied with his artwork, he washed his hands and he dragged her up the stairs to the foyer. No visitors were there, thankfully. He pulled her into the bedroom and positioned her. He took the saw and started to work. At last, his task finished. He's resting in the pajamas and playing today. A rather dull choice of bedwear for a woman who admitted she wished she had lost her virginity. He had always wondered if she was as innocent as she made out in her visits to church. No matter, in all civilized religions, ancient peoples drained the blood of their sacrifices to cleanse them. He was just following tradition. She was pure now. He pushed her up onto the pillows he had plumped for her and set to work. An hour later, she was ready. He had set the scene. The papers could be called. An anonymous message to the local newspapers alerted the police. Three hours later, police swarmed the apartment. The forensics taking the first call on the bodies and exhibits. Chase was one of the first to be informed and was there watching the mother's body being tied and put gently into a body bag. The daughter came a little later. Her corpse took some time to reassemble. The murderer had positioned her carefully but had dismembered the legs and the arms from her torso. Three men observed the process, two police officers chasing the other man a profiler. The latter, a quietly spoken man, waited patiently and made precise notes while the forensic photographer took pictures. He looked puzzled. The careful dismemberment contrasted with the violent slashes across the bodies which set blood spurting from their arteries. The mother's blood covered the walls and sheets in the bedroom, but the daughter's blood also colored the walls of the utility room. Their necks were cut before the frenzied attacks. Then came the separation of the daughter's body, which had been so done so methodically as if the murderer had wanted to put her parts back together again in the future. Looks like we have another nutcase, said Mike Crayley, Chase's senior. Match the characteristics of the murder with others on the databases. See if there are other similarities, and you might have wanted her murdered if she had any enemies. She was being stalked, sir, admitted Chase. A man named David Britt gave her a lift home and became fresh with her. Wanted her to date him. Another time he followed her on a bus and back home. He would not take no for an answer. I suggested he leave her alone and move out of the area to a new job. He had a record for minor assaults on women and stalking. Bring him in and find out if he was near her apartment last night. I'm surprised you didn't caution him, Chase. I wish I had, sir, or done more, but... Given my circumstances, I thought I might be overreacting a little. 
That is understandable, but be overcautious and follow procedure instead of doubting your instincts. You might have saved this girl's life. As they walked back to the car, he asked, Chase, what do we know about her? Chase sighed. She was 24, working in a poorly paid secretary's job at a Tenassi firm. She headed the post and her administrative secretary made her life difficult there. Her mother was dying of cancer and she could only afford to live in that dump. She was studying for a degree and hoped to become an attorney one day. She hardly went out, lived out of thrift shops and bargain grocery stores, and only visited her friend once a month in her hometown. It was her only treat. She walked home one night in the rain, and that creek Brit gave her a lift home and stalked her. Then this happened. Poor kid. She just had no luck, thought Cradley, thinking of his own two pampered teenagers. Every time this occurred... He promised he would take more care of his kids. It hit all the cops who had young daughters hard when they found a beautiful young woman cut up in pieces and laid out like a jigsaw puzzle. Defoe shared Crately's car. What did Detective Chase mean about his circumstances and overreacting, Detective Cratley? He meant nothing, said Cratley, invasively. He is a darn good cop. He was oversensitive. He remembers something in his past, and it makes him question his judgment sometimes. He is a very private person. Ask him yourself when you get back to the precinct, Mr. Defoe. You have access to his records. If he is invasive, he had a psychological counseling some years ago about it. I will, said Defoe. It might influence how he collects evidence about these type of cases. Defoe cursed detectives like Chase and overprotective bosses like Cratley. All cases of stalking should have been noted on police records, and if this guy already had a record, he should have been cautioned. How many times had he dealt with murder victims killed after the police acted too slowly? Chase gave him the creeps. Britt might be the unsub, or he might not, but he would bet his last dollar that the officer used force to frighten this fellow out of town. He was the tall, dark, silent type who kept his emotions tight inside him. He could blow up at any time and direct his anger in the wrong area. An uncontrolled chase could be a loose cannon. Dangerous. This was the best and worst reason for working alongside the front-line cops. The camaraderie and tight relations worked for him or against him. They erected barriers and shut him out if one of their own was accused or threatened. Crackley was an honest and decent cop but looked after his own. You have just been listening to chapter two of Whisper Softly or You're Dead, Men of Valor, Women of Steel, book two. Chapter two kind of throws you for a loop, huh? Because you wasn't expecting what happened and neither was I. My name is Queen Zoya Counts. If you would like to reach out to me to read any of your books on my podcast, you can reach me at queenzoya at gmail.com. Have a nice evening. Peace.